Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, we have a book of battles in front of us and a beautiful passage that really gives us a very deep, deep spiritual truth tonight. We'll finish up chapter 9, verses 16 to 27, and a study that I've entitled, Living with the Enemy. Now you might think that's a strange title, but I want to give you the background behind why I decided that would be a good one. Because you have a choice in life. Every single decision you make either says Jesus Christ is Lord or someone or something else is. Either Jesus is Lord over everything or maybe he's just Lord over some things or perhaps he's Lord over very little Maybe for some people, he's Lord of virtually nothing in your life. Jesus desires to be Lord of everything in your life. Everything. Including the things that you think you're already good at. Including the things that you've had victory over. Including the areas of life where you think you don't need his help. Jesus wants to be Lord of absolutely every area of your life. He does not simply want to be Savior. He wants to be Lord. That means Master. And if you have someone who happens to be the Master of your life or ruler of your life, and that someone happens to be omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, you would think you might want to go to that person for some counsel on virtually everything. Amen? The story of Joshua is the story, repeatedly, of Joshua thinking to himself, at least to some degree, I got this. He's going to learn a powerful lesson in the remainder of this chapter because he's made a decision that's going to cause him to live with the enemy, to be unequally yoked. And this is one that we can easily apply in our lives. You can apply it in your dating life, your married life. You can apply it in your business dealings. You can apply it in who you pick for friends. You can apply this to those that you do business with. When you decide that you're going to make a pact with the enemy, you end up having to bring the enemy into your life. That is a dangerous thing always for every believer. Would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 16. Father, thank you for what's going on. Lord, those that are working so hard on so many border crossings, endangering their own lives to rescue people who are in harm's way in Ukraine, we pray that you would shield them with extra angels. We pray for those medical supplies and food, the water, the the tents, the cots, the blankets, all the things that are being shipped Uh, in mass right now into that region. We pray that each truckload would get to where it needs to go. 
And we pray tonight as we open your word that our hearts would be inclined to hear what you would have to say from heaven. And so ignore, Lord, the servant that speaks and speak to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, last time, two weeks ago, Pastor Dennis was here on Thursday night, Pastor Chet, and I happened to both be at weddings. Uh, he for his son and fresh new daughter-in-law, uh, Emmanuel and Esther are married, and my son Austin and his bride Isabel are also married. Uh, so Pastor Dennis was here. But before that, when we started this chapter, verse 14, here's the issue, here's the problem, here's the reason we are where we are. Joshua, they, the rulers of Israel, did not ask counsel of the Lord. If you didn't underline that when we were there, underline verse 14. Fatal flaw in the life of every person who names the name of Jesus, anyone who's a believer, it is a fatal flaw to not ask God's counsel. And you may be saying, well, I don't need to ask God's counsel for everything. Yes, you do. In Jesus' name, you do. I've been alive long enough and walked down enough roads to tell you that the more frequently you ask the counsel of the Lord, the better off you will be in all things, always. Don't ever think you don't need to counsel the Lord, because the moment you think that, you've just opened the door for the enemy to enter into your life in a substantial way. Because it opens a blind spot. You're basically admitting, I don't need God's help. And when you do that, the enemy goes, that's where I can get Jeff. When he thinks he's strong, there's a reason the Bible says, take heed lest you fall. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. These are admonitions to this problem. We pick up now in verse 16, and it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, now you remember the story, they faked out the Israelites. They, they put on costumes and they did it well. They came in looking haggard and beat up like they had been journeying for weeks, months, and years, when in fact they lived up the road in Gibeon. After they'd made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Well, duh. You didn't talk to God. And then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Sherephthiah, Baroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them, here it comes, by the Lord God of Israel. The children of Israel were forbidden from making an oath or a covenant with any of their neighbors. They were also forbidden from making a false covenant with God. So the moment they evoked God's presence in this covenant, they had to stand behind what they said. And this is a monumental problem for many Christians. Because they will say something foolish, say something that they didn't inquire of God, and then they will follow it up with something akin to, thus says the Lord. 
Yeah, God told me I was supposed to marry that guy. God told me I was supposed to marry that gal. God told me I was supposed to take that job. God told me that I was supposed to give that person that money. God told me, and on and on and on it goes. And we evoke the name of God when we actually haven't asked God at all. We've simply made a decision based on how we think it ought to go. Maybe yesterday's manna. Maybe a victory from the past. Maybe something that you think you already know. And so when you get into those situations where you're making life choices, especially the important ones, the first thing every believer should do is guess what? Inquire of the Lord. Talk to God on it. Because you know what? He doesn't make mistakes, and he's not going to ask you to make a covenant that's going to get you into trouble. They did neither of those two things. They didn't ask the Lord and they made a covenant and swore by God's name. Which then forced them into the situation that we're now about to read about. And all the congregation complained. They grumbled against the rulers. And then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. You see, when you stand before God and you take your wedding vows and that person isn't a believer, but you think somehow you got special dispensation to break what 2 Corinthians 6 clearly says, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, and it goes south, guess what? The vows still count. You took them before God. God honors them even if you don't. And so God's looking at it going, you swore before me that you would love, honor, and cherish that person. I know they're not a believer. I knew before you married them they're not a believer. I knew this would happen. That's why I asked you to ask me, but you didn't ask me. So now you've sworn before me, and guess what? It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. The children of Israel had done something that was very similar. They had now said, these people, we are going to protect them. They didn't even bother to ask God if it was what he wanted or not. But this we will do to them. We'll let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore before them. To the rulers they said, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as rulers as we had promised them. And then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Duh, because the enemy is a liar. It's what the enemy always does. The enemy never tells you the truth. The enemy goes, oh, well, you know, he's almost a Christian. She's nearly saved. Don't worry about what Pastor Jeff said, about what the Bible says. Don't worry about what the word of the Lord actually declares plainly. That's old news. You think for yourself. 
you know, you're not getting any younger. After all, he's got some money. He actually owns a car. And I don't mean to make too light of it because many have stumbled in this area and there's plenty of grace in the Lord Jesus for those failures, but God doesn't want you in this situation in the first place. He doesn't want you to go there. His word is always going to be true whether you like what it says or you don't. And so the children of Israel find themselves in this place. They didn't ask God. They did what their heart told them. Can I tell you that your heart is deceitful and it is desperately wicked? Who can know it, including you? And so when you get a professional liar and his minions, the devil, and his group that are called that multitude in the heavenly places of evil, they're really good at lying. They're really good at deceiving. And if you're not listening, if you're not paying attention to what God wants, if you're not in the word, if you're not talking to God, you're fresh for a deception. You're set up for it. And therefore you are cursed. None of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. And so the answer, Joshua, and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded you. Now I want you to notice something here. The devil knows what the Bible says. Check this out. These are heathens from Gibeon. And they are quoting exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy. They're right. The only thing is, they're quoting it out of context. Same thing that the devil did to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation. Amen? This is how the enemy works. He knows what the Bible says. That your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to utterly destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. And therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. And we have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. And so we did to them. Delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now here's the tragedy. This whole mess was completely and totally avoidable. It didn't have to happen. It could have been skipped. In their haste. It's the reason that Moses had told the Jewish people in Exodus 34, verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. Moses' exact words about the promised land, which is exactly where this is. Had they been listening to the word and been doers of the word, had they inquired of God and done what God said, they would not be in this position. But they didn't and they are. And so if there's a word to us in this, it's we as the church, as God's children of grace, 
must first listen to the word of the Lord, and then we must be doers of the word of the Lord. We can't just be hearers only. James was right. Because we can know what it says and not do it. We can ignore it. And when we do, we do so at our own peril, church. And God doesn't want you in peril. Here's the tragedy of this. God's desire and God's design for the children of Israel in the promised land was to bless them. It was the land of promise. It was to be the land overflowing with milk and honey. It was a good land. It was a place they were supposed to go and be in peace and blessed. And they chose a path that did not include the blessings that God wanted for them because they didn't choose God's path. This is is incredible to us. But don't we do the same thing sometimes? We know exactly what God's word says. Matter of fact, I often have people, I'll I'll ask them, do you know what the Bible says? Uh Uh-huh. Why aren't you doing it? Well, I, I just don't think it's right for me. I don't think it applies to this situation. And when you begin to take that type of a path, then everything in the Bible becomes negotiable. Where does that stop? Let me just ask you a simple question. If you are the arbiter of what the truth of the Bible actually is in deference to yourself, then where does that stop? Because if you really look at it from that perspective, then maybe God didn't mean what he said in John 3.16. Maybe Romans 5.8 doesn't mean what it seems to say. Maybe God didn't become sin for us. Maybe we're not justified by the blood of the Lamb. Perhaps Christ didn't die for the ungodly. Maybe he doesn't actually love us. You see, the best way to avoid that conflict in your mind is to do exactly what the Word says and believe all of it, even the parts you don't like, even the parts you disagree with. Because let's face it, there are things in the Bible that we disagree with, right? I've had people, you know, it's like, well, you know, I just, I just don't think that's right. And I go, well, you're just not God. I'm going to believe him. I realize you have your argument for why you feel this way, but I'm going to trust God. Mind-bogglingly, they're now stuck, unequally yoked, as 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, to unbelievers. As they do so, they're now left guessing. Instead of having the word of God, instead of having the power of God, instead of knowing God's will for the life, which God wants you to know, they're now having to navigate around the fact that they have the enemy living in their camp. So very often this comes up in marriage relationships where there's a believer and an unbeliever that are now married. And that, by the way, this whole conversation doesn't really apply to people who didn't know the Lord when they got married and one person came to faith in Christ. That is a different situation. This is talking about someone who intentionally marries someone. You know they're not saved. And now you have completely different worldviews living in the same house. Well, honey, I want to go to church. Well, I'm not interested in going to church. I want to raise our children in the Lord. Well, why would I want to do that? 
I want to tithe to the church. You're not giving away our money. You see, you end up with this endless string of things to where you have to capitulate to the desires of someone who doesn't share God's viewpoint on virtually anything. They may be nice. They may be morally kind. There could be all kinds of great qualities about them. But when you take the Lord out of someone's life, that person is now governed by a different standard. And it is not the same governance as you have in the Lord. So there is built-in conflict to virtually everything. It may be slight. It may not be all the time. But it is there in the midst of every conversation and every decision. It is something that eats at that relationship until both people come to faith in Christ. Now, by his grace, very often, God mercifully does have that other person eventually come to faith through the life lived out before them of the believing partner. But the whole mess, like this one, was avoidable before you said, I do. So be careful. What Paul said is correct. You know, it's tough to be an ambassador for the Lord when the people that you live with don't want anything to do with your God. And so now they're stuck having to violate an oath that they took literally before God. God, we won't harm them. When God had actually told them to wipe out all the inhabitants of the land. So now they can't actually do what God told them to do because they've made a subsequent oath. They have, in essence, sullied their character before these people. And so God is going to honor what they have said. This principle spreads to virtually every area of decision-making in a believer's life at some point in time. As military leaders, Joshua could have said, well, God told us what to do, so we're going to do it. But now they're stuck. They can't even follow the orders that they were previously given. So be careful. Another thing that we see here is the effect of grumbling. Why were they grumbling at, at the leadership? Well, there's several reasons. I think high on the list would be now when they went and took these cities, which they were still going to do, they would not be able to take spoil from those cities. They weren't going to gain a thing. They were simply going to have to expense blood and treasure, go take the cities, and they would have to start all over instead of being able to have the plunder because the plunder would then belong to the people that they were told not to kill. They would leave them alive, and therefore God said, you have to be good to your enemies. You cannot starve them. You've got to give them their stuff so they can stay alive. And so there's a financial part of it. Secondarily to that, and probably even more important, if you really want to look at it from a standards standpoint, from God's standards, now they were going to have ungodly behavior in the presence of their children constantly. Sound familiar? Now they were going to have ungodly behavior in the presence of their children constantly because they had ungodly people living in their camp and they had to let them live there. Very much applicable in our lives. When we make business arrangements, we go into business with people that don't know the Lord. Well, it's going to be a great business. You are yoking yourself to an unbeliever. You have equal parts of the business. 
You have equal ability in the decision-making. And so all of your employees, guess what, are around people who don't know the Lord constantly with a completely different set of values than you hold. They don't mind cheating. They don't mind lying. They don't mind deceiving. They don't mind drunken cocktail parties on Friday. They don't mind any of those things. But you're going to have to live with it. Because they're your business partner. You signed on the line. So until you get out of that business arrangement, until you leave that corporation, until you're willing to give up the money that you invested in it, you're stuck in exactly the same situation. little different thinking. God doesn't want you to have to go through all of that. And so he says, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. For what has light to do with darkness? Christ with Belial. Those things don't go together. And so for the children of Israel, they now have pagan people living inside of the camp that are over-worshipping their false gods. And their kids are going by, Hey, Mom, Dad, what are they doing? Why are they bowing down to that statue? Things that their children should have never seen, they now are forced to see. Be careful about who you're yoked to. The third thing, and again, very important, God had already spoken on this issue. He said, don't do it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Very stern warnings through Moses, do not compromise with the inhabitants of the land. When you go there, I want you to be holy, and I want them gone, because I want you to be holy. Be very careful because you cannot directly take these principles and apply them in a a democracy as we have here in the United States of America. It's very difficult to do. But the principle that's behind this is light and darkness don't dwell together very well. Jesus and the devil are not exactly good companions. Amen? I know that sounds extreme, but that's really what's at heart here. The thing that you see in this is God is never wrong. And because God had already told them this is what this would be what would happen, guess what happened? What God said would happen happened. As I've lived out my life as a, as a Christian, as I've been a pastor and in ministry for decades, I have watched this play out over and over and over and over and over again where people come with their very well-reasoned excuses as to why they won't do what the Bible says. And I have yet to have a single person ever come back to me and say the Bible was wrong. It's never happened. Uh, But I've had countless people come back and say, yeah, God was right. It worked out exactly as he said it would. What the Bible said is true. What I thought was wrong. So a word to us, do what it says. The good part is, is you can learn from your mistakes. Amen? God's grace is always available if you want it. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, even people who have made mistakes. He is kind and merciful even to those who have been disobedient. 
He is loving and generous always to everyone who seeks his face. And so in that sense, no mistake is terminal. God doesn't want you to go through the circumstances in the first place. And so he's trying to get us into this position to where we don't test those waters. But when you do, learn from it. Talk to God first. Don't make that mistake. You see, the quickest way to not have to ask for forgiveness, the quickest way to not have to unmess something up is to not mess it up in the first place. Amen? If you stay out of trouble, you don't have to get out of trouble. It's not that complicated. So often we make it complicated. It's just like, well, I'll just kind of dance around the issue a little bit. And I'm going to see. And it's amazing to me. For those of you that have children, you know this in virtually every area of life. When you're raising your children, beginning at about two years old, when they start to be able to reason some things for themselves, what is it that they do? They test and see exactly how far they can go before they get in trouble. Amen? You know what? If you're here and you're a parent, say amen. That's what they do. Your kids go over there. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Okay, I'll use a fork instead. You said finger. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, that's what sinners do. Kids are little sinners. And they're trying to test their environment. And so what they're doing is they're trying to see how close they can get to sin before it actually bites them. Now, for those of you that don't know, your pastor is a little bit nuts. And I, you know, have been known to catch live rattlesnakes and those types of things and show them to kids. That's just something that I learned how to do when I was in high school and college. And so I'm fairly adept at handling snakes. But you don't want a two-year-old doing the same thing. Amen? They have no idea. It's like, is that the head or the tail? I'll just grab it. I'll just get it somewhere. I saw dad do it. And they're going to get bit. You see, without all of the other information, without the maturity, there are a lot of things that mature believers might be able to survive that an immature believer will not survive. And so you have to be very careful when you're giving your witness before the world that you don't give other people an opportunity to sin. That's why Scripture is very clear You are not to have an appearance of evil in your life as a believer. You're not to stumble your brother or your sister. Your life, what you do, matters because you may be perfectly fine, but someone watching you take that liberty may not have the same result. And so here for the children of Israel, they've taken up this whole thing. They're like, well, you know, it's going to work out for us, and we can just make nice with them. It'll be okay. Not going to be okay. Probably for Joshua, because he's a tough military leader, he probably could have handled that situation. But the people that were weak, the people that weren't wandering around just really praising God every day, they were going to be in serious, serious trouble. And so Joshua gets an opportunity to learn from those mistakes. And that God pro tip, it's kind of like Bass Pros. It's like when you have an opportunity to talk to God, Take it in Jesus' name. I don't know. I, I, well, I do know. 
It's because we're prideful and arrogant, generally, and we think we know better. But the fact of the matter is, you, you have an open line of communication to the creator of heaven and earth and you. Why would you not want to talk to God first? One of the pleasures that Ty and I experienced last week is we're going through all the wedding stuff. It's like, all of a sudden, Jeff got to be dad for a little bit. And it was amazing how many things. It's like, well, dad, what do you think? And I have to tell you that as a father, you want to hear those things. Because, you know what, I've been on the earth for a while. I probably know a few things that my son doesn't. And I'm happy to share them with him. But I also don't want to sit around and lecture him, so I'm waiting for him to ask. Like, well, Dad, how would you handle that? Well, well, thanks for asking. Let me share something with you. But if he hadn't asked, I would just assume he either already knows or doesn't want to know. And the same is true for you and God. Only difference is he knows you don't know. And he's sitting there going, I'm right here. truth is your decisions have consequences. This is one of those things that I often get into discussions with people on. Because, well, you know, God's sovereign. He works it all out in the end. That is the number one Christian cop-out that I have ever heard anybody utter. Yes, God is sovereign. But his will is expressed in two very specific ways. One is his perfect will, that's what he wants for you specifically. And the other is his permissive will, where he allows your choices to be made by you. And then he unscrambles the egg that you scramble, and it may take a lifetime to do so. So don't think for a moment that your decisions don't have consequences. It's the reason that Jesus actually emphasized believing in him. There was nothing to believe in. If everybody was going to automatically get saved, then Jesus would have never said, it is enough that you believe in me. You have to, with your heart, believe that Jesus Christ is God's own son and the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, raised him from the dead. You have to believe that Jesus is in order to be saved. But the fact of the matter is, you can believe that Jesus is and still not do what he says. Like, I know he's sovereign God. I know he's Savior. But right now, I kind of don't feel like doing what he said. Kind of like a kid. The Gibeonites are going to readily admit they're a bunch of liars. That's the crazy thing. If you read this passage and read it a little bit liberally, it's like, yeah, we lied to you. (laughs) Sad for you. Good for us. You can almost see them wringing their hands going, man, we got them. There's nothing they can do to us now. Later on, as you read the book of Chronicles and go through Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and the book of Kings, you're going to find out that the Gibeonites actually ended up in a fairly unique situation because of this very event they would end up being the woodcutters that would supply the wood for the temple. And they would profit handsomely from it. 
They would be the ones that would supply the labor to assist the priest, and they would bring the water. What are the two most important things in the temple? The wood and the water. And so they're going to profit for the rest of their days from this. And every Israelite could look at these Gibeonite suppliers of wood and water and go, that was Joshua made that deal. All the while going, well, you know, it would have been really nice if we didn't have to pay those prices because they aren't turned into slaves here. They're actually given an opportunity to be industrious because the law commanded that. If someone did work, you had to care for them. You had to be fair. You see, God doesn't play games. And so those decisions that you make may have consequences, in this case, that lasted as long as the temple lasted. This battle of wits that went on really was won by the Gibeonites. I think Paul nailed that. And again, I'll just read it to you. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to see the context here. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, and our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And so Paul is actually addressing some problems in the church at Corinth, and he's saying, look, the problem is not me. The problem is you. You have a very specific leaning towards these problem areas. That is when he says, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what has fellowship with, of righteousness with lawlessness. What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Paul goes on to say, Look, this, this isn't about the building. This is actually about you. You're now the temple. And then, interestingly enough, Paul then goes on, as a Pharisee you might think would, and quotes from the Old Testament, beginning with Leviticus 26. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He quotes four Old Testament passages of Scripture to go, I have always been this way. I have never wanted anything different from my people. I have always wanted my people to be separate, to be called out ones, to not wander with the unbelievers, to be, I don't want them unequally yoked. I didn't want it for Joshua at Gibeon, and I don't want it for you, Jeff. The good news is God's a God of grace and mercy. The Gibeonites are going to submit and they're, they're going to act properly and ultimately they will cause Joshua to have victory over five more city-states, five more kings. They'll be used actually to help Joshua win some battles. This is a picture of God's redemptive work. Man messes up and God fixes it. 
Indeed, all things do work together to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's also true. But I wonder how many straight paths there are that we could be on and we take the circuitous back roads. We wander around for years trying to get to a place we could get to in a week. Remember that Gibeon is only 25 miles from where the children of Israel are. They could have gone straight there and had a victory. But instead, they're, they're now on their third day just talking about it. They're wasting time. They're wasting resources. How many Christians waste time and waste God's resources fighting battles that they don't even need to fight because God already won them, but you insist in making God teach you a lesson that he's already told you what he wants? You really don't want to do that very often. Not only is it progressively painful, and notice what I just said, progressively painful. God doesn't take out the big stick to start with. That's why in the children of Israel, when they're in captivity in Egypt, he begins with very simple things. First, it's flies, right? He doesn't get to the death of the firstborn until a lot later. He's like, pay attention. You know, right now you can just wave this whole thing away but it's going to cost you something a lot worse later. God works like that. That's who his grace and mercy is. He is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires for us to experience his grace and mercy every single moment of every day. But we choose how straight the path is to that great mercy, grace and mercy. Sometime I have to go down that road of being chastised before I get to the grace and mercy, don't I? That's because I choose to be unequally yoked somewhere. I, I went and joined myself to something that I shouldn't be joined to. I got involved in some type of behavior or I said something or I took up a lifestyle that cost me dearly. Decisions have consequences. God wants the straight road that leads to righteousness. And few there are, how, what did Jesus say? Narrow is the way that leads unto righteousness, and few there are that find it. It's a, it's a narrow, it's a straight path, it's direct. All these things that are outside, that are drawing our attention away, the stuff that's outside of the sheepfold of God, those things are designed by the devil to get you to look elsewhere. You, you don't want to have a battle of cunning and wits with the devil. He's actually pretty intelligent. What lessons can we learn? I want to give you some takeaways to so just write them down, take them with you. A vast majority of the things that you will deal with in your life as a believer need to be done principally in faith. I'm not saying you have to necessarily buy your groceries, you know, walking through the aisle. Lord, should I get the brand flour? You know, I'm not talking like that. So it's not a bad idea if you can pull it off. If you can still get your grocery shopping done in less than a day and you want to wander through and pray over the flower in Jesus' name, go for it. But what I am saying is we walk by faith and not by sight. As believers, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. It's not just a matter of me seeing what's in front of me and doing my best. It's a matter of me not seeing what's in front of me and committing that to God. Because there's stuff in front of you you can't see, but God can. So walk by faith. Don't think you've got it, because you don't. 
And neither do I. A second thing. If you don't know, don't go. If you need wisdom, ask for it. It's amazing to me how many Christians spend so much time undoing things that they never ask God for wisdom for. They just kind of did their best. And look, God wants you to think. We're actually going to cover that in a couple of weeks. God gave you a mind for a reason. I don't want you to think you're supposed to put your brain in a bag, stick it on the shelf. That's not true either. Wisdom and prudence go together. The ability to take knowledge and use it correctly is actually the definition of wisdom. So it involves your mind. It is involving your thinking. But your thinking is supposed to be governed by the Holy Spirit. And the only way that happens is if you actually ask for God to do that. Otherwise, you just got what you can think. So ask. God will give it to you liberally, James says. Without partiality. I love that term. In other words, he doesn't look at me, somebody who generally, I talk to God a fair amount. He doesn't just arbitrarily say, well, you're not worthy, and Jeff is. He will give to anyone liberally who asks without any kind of partiality. So if you need it, ask for it, because he's just as likely to give it to you as he is to me. A third thing, don't rely on yourself. Do not rely on just what you can think. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right in demand, but the end of that way is death. I like to think I'm fairly rational, at least most of the time. I'm actually a pretty good planner. I have a tendency to think through things at a fairly deep level. But you know what? That's nothing compared to what God can do. And there are a lot of times when it just seems right to me. I just, that's like, yeah, those pieces add up. And I figured out that some of those things that I assemble aren't supposed to be assembled. I need to ask God. The truth of the matter is, is we see the material world and that is all we see. I communicate in the material realm with people who also live in a material world. And I'm not talking about Madonna. I'm talking about the physical existence that we all share. I assume that you all believe the pews you're sitting on are actually physically there. That world. But there is actually a world as you can't see. And it has both good and evil in it simultaneously. There's physical evidence to the physical world and there is spiritual evidence to the spiritual world. And that spiritual world, my friends, is real. The devil is real. And if you think he's not, you're setting yourself up to get boot kicked through the goalpost of life. Because the devil loves it when people who profess Christ's name walk around as if they already have everything they need. The devil's just waiting for you to get by yourself. And he's like, perfect. Here's someone I can really torment. Truth is, 
you're going to find things you can't handle. And the devil's going to bring them to you. So be careful. Paul's admonition there in Ephesians 6, and I don't want to steal you ladies' thunder because you're going to get there fairly soon in the ladies' study. But Paul's admonition to the church is finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not you, not me, him. The Lord. Be strong in the power of his might. And it's interesting, as Paul gives this admonition, the very next thing he says is, you're not strong enough, put on the armor of God. Oh, you want to be strong in the power of his might, but even then, put on the armor of God is another way to look at it. Even, even if you are a prayer warrior, even if you have been reading your Bible, even if you are talking to God constantly, if you think you've heard the word of the Lord, you better armor up. You need to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Verse 12, for there is an invisible world, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You see, this battle that Joshua was in with the children of Israel had a physical component to it, but it was a spiritual battle. There is a literal devil. There are literal demons. There are angels. There is God's people. And there's a battle going on. And we don't wrestle against... Your enemy is not that person that you have that disagreement with. Your enemy is a roaring lion who seeks to destroy you. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And therefore, he says it again, take up the whole armor of God. And he goes on to describe it. Cover your mind in salvation. Cover your heart in righteousness. Cover your insides with the belt of truth. Take out the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. Put on the gospel of peace be ready to stand, and having done all to stand, Paul says. Stand, therefore. You see, Joshua and the children of Israel basically hadn't done anything to stand. They certainly didn't have the spiritual armor on. They actually didn't even have their swords. They're like, these guys are friends. They invited the spiritual battle to come into the camp of the Israelites they failed to see this very thing. There are some truths that we can leave with tonight. We're involved in a deadly spiritual battle, warfare, with a far superior strength than our own personal strength. Now, you're mighty in the power of the Lord, even under the tearing down of the strongholds of the wicked one is what the Bible says. But the fact of the matter is, you do not want to face a full frontal assault of the enemy on your own. 
So don't recognize too much of your own strength, but rather recognize that you don't have the strength that you need, and you need his strength. You see, if I don't ask for it, I may go into battle with no armor. If I don't pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the truth, then I can't wield it. If I'm not standing behind the shield of faith, then those fiery darts of the wicked one hit home. A second thing, if we want to have victory, if we want to be delivered, if we don't want to be ruined by his nefarious schemes, then we have to put on the armor. So there is a battle, the battle is real, and you're not sufficient for it. And if you want to be victorious, you for sure, just like what's going on in Ukraine right now, You want to be inside of something that's going to protect you. In this case, you want the whole armor of God. Every bit of it. I don't want any part of my body exposed, any part of my mind exposed, any part of my soul exposed to the frontal assault of the enemy. So put on the whole armor. You only have two offensive weapons that are principal in Scripture. And they are the ones that Jesus wielded. I want you to see this. Jesus wielded exactly two weapons in the New Testament. And they're the same two that are going to be effective for you. The Word of God. When Jesus was confronted by Satan himself, the only weapon he used was the Word of God. And when he was beat up in the garden, the other weapon he used was prayer. When he was about to be trounced, beaten, and ultimately killed for our sin, the only weapon he wielded was the word of God and prayer. That's it. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for us. Amen? And finally, whenever you have a victory... And I believe there are some of you tonight that need to hear this. Whenever you have a victory, beware. They had won at Jericho. They had lost at AI, come back and won again at AI. They're now in that victorious state. We've taken two of the big cities here. It is then that they were open to a tactical mistake because they weren't paying attention. When you have experienced a victory, something good in your life has gone on with the Lord. Beware. Because the enemy will use that time of jubilation to creep in somewhere. To bring some nefarious plan around behind the back door where you seem to be prospered, Satan kind of doubles his effort. And so Jeff's not paying attention. He's so focused on the good things that he's forgotten the war still going on. You see, the battle belongs to the Lord. And the victory is secure in Christ. Satan is a defeated foe. Amen? Amen? But what's the other truth? 
The war is still going on. There's a, there's a number of stories, but I'm familiar with one about 43 Japanese soldiers who were on the island of Iwo Jima. They were on that island for almost two years after the war was over. When the peace agreement was signed with Japan on the deck of the Missouri in the harbor at Tokyo, they kept fighting for another two years. They were loyal to Imperial Japan. They were already defeated. They weren't going to win. But they were going to keep fighting to the death. And the same is true for the devil. He can't win. His back was broken at the cross. He's he's a defeated enemy. One day Jesus is going to grab him by the neck and throw him in the pit. Amen? But he's going to try and take as many of you out as he can before he goes. The battle is still raging. So make sure you have your armor on. Make sure you've talked to God. Make sure you're walking in the Spirit. Make sure that you recognize that battle is ongoing. Don't give in to those nefarious schemes. And for all intents and purposes, if you do two simple things, talk to God first, and then do what he says, you're going to be just fine. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you need prayer after service, we'll have some pastors up front to pray with you, pray for you. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, I am grateful. Lord, so many times, uh, Lord, I'm just a self-dependent guy. Uh, Lord, there's been a lot of times in my life where you've had to break me of that self-dependence. Lord, I'm glad as I've gotten older that I realize exactly how bankrupt I am. And I pray there's someone here tonight or someone watching online or who will watch this later that's prone to rest and trust in yesterday's victory. Lord, who maybe thinks they're better off than they really are that hasn't considered that the enemy is still roaring as a lion and wants to destroy us, would love to take us out before he goes down. God, I pray that you'd strengthen us to remember that we need to talk to you every day. We need to seek your face. And when you speak, we need to do what you say. So Lord, help us with that. Help us to not get into this trouble of having to live with the enemy because we made a covenant. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word which are sure and true they are yes and amen and you love us and your grace is sufficient and so lord give us your all-sufficient grace give us wisdom we ask all this in the name of jesus amen thanks for listening and we hope you were encouraged by today's message if you have any questions or just want to check us out make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.